We've been talking a lot on this podcast about the funding surge that started around halfway through 2020. With valuations continuing to balloon, I think everyone is trying to understand, is it a good thing, a bad thing, or a sign of things to come? Today, I get a global lens on the situation with Tony Willis, Matt Sidabaka, and Seb Kyle of Renaissance Leadership, a boutique exec recruiting firm with offices in the US and Europe. These guys have been at it for almost two decades, seen tech empires rise and fall, and rubbed elbows with some of the biggest names in tech, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, Mark Benioff, and Nicholas Zenstrom along the way. But before we get into the interview, one thing to know, we had some technical difficulties with this recording. Lots of lines, lots of time zones, lots of countries. Starting with this week's joke. Seb told one, and it was hilarious, let me tell you. I'd retell it, but I wouldn't do it justice. You'll just have to trust me. And with that, on to the interview. I'd love to jump into the the founding of Renaissance. So, Tony, I know you um, you founded this company two decades ago or so, and I, I would love to hear a little bit more about you know when you started Renaissance. You know what was the opportunity you were seeing, and why and why did you start it? Okay, yeah. So, well, prior to that, I um, had spent uh, ten years working for a uh, startup in London called Harvey Nash, which was uh, a kind of forerunner in the senior technology recruitment uh, market. And uh, we built that into a, a great company. We IPO'd in, on the London Stock Exchange in 1997. Um, and at its peak, we were, you know, a thousand people uh, global. Uh, and I was running the European uh, executive search practice uh, across eight countries in, in Europe. So that was going great guns. But then we, we kind of hit the buffers uh, as, you know, the kind of dot-com boom, the, the you know, dot-com 1.0 uh, that bubble burst in 2001 and 9-11 and uh, the telco crash. And so um, I came out at that point and was kind of casting around uh, for what to do next. Um, and I'd always enjoyed working, particularly during the dot-com you know, boom first time around, working with founders uh, and early stage companies. And so I bumped into uh, a guy that I knew in London called Ben Anderson, um, who uh, uh, had been at another company called Robert Waters, and he set up this business called Renoir uh, Partners, which I guess was a kind of forerunner for, for uh, Renaissance, um, in so much as they were targeting, as a boutique firm, targeting early stage tech uh, companies um, in, in Europe and doing leadership team hires. So I joined um, Ben in 2002. And in fact, that's where I met Seb, because Seb was there um, yeah, uh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and that was going well, you know, and we acquired uh, Christian and Timbers uh, in London, and they acquired our business in uh, in San Francisco. So we became Renoir Christian and Timbers, you know, so worked with Jeff Christian. But then, unfortunately, we acquired another company, which was an RPO firm, you know, recruitment process outsourcing. And at that mm-hmm. point, I thought, you know what, that doesn't really sit well with executive search. It's too far down the value chain, um, kind of your mess for less recruiting. Um, and also, I was kind of hankering after doing my own thing. So actually, Seb and I then peeled out of uh, Renoir, Christian and Timbers and set up uh, Renaissance in 2003. And there was a kind of a link there, you know, Renoir being a Renaissance artist and Renaissance. So that was a kind of that was a kind of link. And Seb and I, yeah, we, we, we peeled away. We decided to work closer to home, um, basically in London's version or, or the UK's version of Silicon Valley, which is the, the M4 corridor. Um, we're about 30 miles west of, of London with all the uh, the big US headquartered firms that have the European HQs. Um, yeah, and, and that's how we started. And we started out in a small serviced office um, in a town called Maidenhead, 
um, just west of London um, with the two of us and a, a part-time um, finance director uh, and a kind of PA. And, and we got going from there. Yeah. And Seb, you were there at the very beginning. You know, what was it that you, you know, the value proposition that you and Tony were talking about, you know, in those early days about, you know, how are you really differentiating yourself? At the core of it, the work we do is interesting. Okay. So, you know, if you want to learn technology, there's plenty of things you can do. You can, you can do divisional heads for IBM or EMC or these big tech companies. And it's square pegs, square holes. It's pretty dull. But when you work with emerging tech, when you work with the companies that really define and make a difference, it, it, it's just a different ballgame. I, I went to Stanford in 2001, 2002, and I met Sergi and Larry skateboarding around. They just raised their Series A. They, was, they were found in Google. I mean, it was just a different ballgame. And that is what makes it interesting because every single day when we work with these companies, they are category-defining companies. They are doing things that are different, and that makes it intriguing. And that's kept me, for the last 20 years, that's what I've loved. You know, it makes a complete difference. Guys, you know, we had Mark Benioff from Salesforce came into the office when he was setting up Salesforce. We had Nicholas Zenstrom when he was setting up Skype. So I think working in early-stage tech gives you real access, as Seb says, to these incredible entrepreneurs right at the start of their uh, their journeys. Right. And so, you know, was it was the opportunity that you saw 20 years ago that there was just something enormous happening in tech and that, you know, that was that probably took tremendous foresight and was really smart. You know, I wonder now, 20 years later, um, there's tons of executive recruiting firms. And so how, how do you really think about differentiating Renaissance and what you do today versus versus others? Well, I think, you know, this comes down to we're focused very much still on the you know, tech and digital um, segments. Um, we're working in the two kind of epicenters of, of tech globally. So I think in San Francisco, Silicon Valley and in London, which is the, you know, the kind of center for what goes on in tech in Europe. Um, and we're working primarily pretty much exclusively with venture capital and private equity, uh, private equity about businesses. So it really is firms at that early stage um, in their evolution. Um, working with the entrepreneurs, with the founders, um, and with the, the core investors. And I think there are a few other firms that, that play in a similar space, um, but very few, I think, that do it well. And I think that is still a market that is um, yeah, it's kind of dominated by uh, a few firms uh, like us who got into this, you know, at, at the kind of the beginning of the kind of web uh, 2.0 um, cycle around uh, about the kind of mid-2000s. Mid, mid Hey, do you like our show? I do too. If you want to support the startup stack, the best way to do that is by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Also, send dad jokes, or if you have them, actual good jokes, to podcast at rocketplace.com. Feel free to send us feedback there too. Matt, I'd love to, you know, you're you're running the uh, US for Renaissance. And, you know, I'd love to understand, um, you know, your story about how you found seven tony and how you know what what were you doing before and and you know and how how have you changed the value prop for what renaissance does today uh yeah sure so uh 12 years ago uh i was uh finishing university wasn't quite sure what i wanted to be uh when i grew up uh, I had a career counselor who was incredibly thoughtful and probably should have been in recruitment herself over semester you know spent a lot of time just getting into my head and heart 
had a brother-in-law who was in recruitment and based on some personality traits, she'd said, Hey, I think this would be an interesting field for, you know, a bright young 20 something, uh, who, you know, is still seeking clarity on, you know, where in industry he wants to go. And so I had a girlfriend at the time who had just joined a uh, small boutique organization called Diversa Partners. And I know last week or, or last episode, you uh, had Bill Beer, who's just a tremendous recruiter in his own right. I interviewed uh, with a partner from the firm, met Paul Diversa, and never looked back as far as uh, recruitment as a profession. At the time, there was a lot I didn't know. And for me, I think uh, a real value that I have since been able to contribute in my role here at Renaissance Leadership, but just to my clients and constituents, candidates in the market, I needed to spend some time internally. So uh, there was about a six or seven year period uh, after I had joined Diversa where I went to work for some larger organizations, Hewlett Packard, uh, Rackspace, SunPower. And that was really about understanding how do you take a product from idea to uh, monetization strategy to uh, customer um, and really understanding that technology meets go-to-market. I give you that longer narrative to say there was a gentleman that I had met at Hewlett Packard who was running the enterprise services business for EMEA. And I was uh, one of two executive recruiters running the enterprise services business for North America. And a wonderful individual who's still in leadership consulting named William Bearball. William uh, knew Sebastian through uh, their uh, sons uh, go to uh, university or, or go to school together. A decade earlier, over a pint of Guinness, I was waxing poetic about how there had to be a better way uh, or a more informed way to service technology. And so fast forward, you know, William had connected with Seb and subsequently connected with Tony, and we were expanding in our North America business. Uh, and so he said, hey, you know, fired me up or called, up, uh, called me on the phone and said, I'd love for you to reconnect uh, or connect with some colleagues of mine uh, that I know through industry. Um, and this was five years ago, uh, picked up, called Tony or spoke to Tony, spoke to Seb, uh, loved what they were doing, subsequently spoke to, you know, our former colleague and, uh, founder of the firm, uh, Ben Anderson, um, and never looked back. Yeah. And, and maybe for Seb or Tony, you know, was, was Renaissance always imagined as a global, global business? Well, I think, you know, clearly if you're going to play in this space and, and really be effective, working with the biggest clients globally, then you need to have a footprint in North America. And it's very hard, actually, for European-based firms to get that foothold. Um, often it's the other way around. U.S. firms come here. And so, actually, you know, the good fortune, I was over in San Francisco uh, meeting some people and hooked up with Ben Anderson, we mentioned a few times there, who I'd known and we worked with at Renoir back in the day. And he was working with a, um, a boutique firm called Lonergan, over in, in the valley, Mark Lonergan. And, you know, he wasn't really enjoying that and was casting around for, for what to do, do next from his perspective. I said, Ben, you know, why don't we get the band back together? Come, come and set up uh, Renaissance in, in the US for us. And so that's what happened. That was 10 years ago. And so on that kind of chance at dinner uh, with Ben, we decided to, to get going um, in, in, in the valley. I mean, Ben uh, was living in Menlo Park, and so he knew the... Uh, the market pretty well and had good contacts and, and, and off we went and you know he set up the office in, in Middlefield Road and uh, that's where we are today. And, and then how do you how do you think about integrating between the the two offices between the U.S. and London? Yeah, I mean there isn't a huge amount of kind of day to day integration. I mean we, we we have our weekly calls and we, we share the same kind of systems and we use Clockwork together and and that kind of stuff. Um, we use the same accounting platforms, but 
I guess that there are kind of three distinct uh, markets that there are North American firms hiring in North America, and obviously that's Matt and his team. There are European yeah. firms hiring in Europe, and that's us. And then there are firms you want to look at the global talent pool, and that's where we do work together. But I would say, I mean, you know, it, that, that primarily is European firms wanting to attract talent from the US. Um, I think some US firms want to bring talent in from Europe, possibly, you know, US citizens returning home. But, you know, a lot of European firms want that kind of Silicon Valley sizzle in their business, particularly in the technology function, you know, CTO and um, at that level. So that's quite a big thing for us. And obviously having a US footprint, having an office and people on the ground makes a big difference there. Look, I would add to that with this past year and COVID uh, being a great uh, driver of the future of work, just in terms of, you know, people working from home, leaving offices, changing the nature of, you know, what hiring teams were open to consider. I think the benefits of being a global firm have never been more powerful than this last year. I think there's more collaboration that happens organizationally than ever before. I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that COVID has driven is created a, a flatter environment in terms of where people can be. Um, and so Sebastian and uh, our colleagues in Europe have opportunities to drive wonderful work uh, in New York and Boston uh, and along the Atlantic coast. And I think being able to speak thoughtfully uh, about uh, or intelligently just about you know, the global marketplace uh, really adds a different dimension. Um, yeah. Seb and I have a pitch uh, in two weeks time and it's a uh, firm, um, an investment firm out of the UK that's looking to attract an investor from uh, North America. And, and, you know, an ability to be able to speak thoughtfully and have colleagues on the ground there, but also represent the marketplace here, I think is just a powerful differentiator. Hey, Ben. Sorry, it's a little loud. Where are you? I'm test driving rocket ships. You what? Rocket ships for the rocket place ad. Excuse me. What, what does this button do? Oh, don't touch it? Okay. Lewis, we've talked about this. It's branding, Ben. Trust me. Hey, does this ship have windshield wipers? software to pair businesses with world-class firms in everything from finance and accounting to marketing and branding, recruiting, software development, domain name buying, product design, and more. I guess we did talk about that. Yeah. So no rocket ships then? No. Are you sure? Come home, bud. Okay. Excuse me, actually. I have to go. How do I leave? Yeah, Oh, I can't leave. Wait, why is the floor rumbling? Rocket Place. Find your firms, grow your business. Ben? Ben? I don't know if I'm going to make it to the office today. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk a little bit about your clients. Maybe you could tell me a little bit more about what is, what does a typical client look like for you today? And yeah, I think it is. I mean, so in Europe, we we are kind of split in, into two sectors: we're, we're a consumer and enterprise. 
and Chevron's enterprise, and I, I kind of run the consumer side of things. So a consumer client would be, I mean, typically, you know, kind of e-commerce marketplace businesses. Uh, a great example recently would be um, a company called Kazoo, which is based loosely on Carvana in, in the US. Yeah, um, yeah. Set up 18 months ago by Alex Chesterman, one of Europe's kind of foremost uh, digital entrepreneurs and, and uh, a good kind of a friend and, and client of ours. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've helped him build out his leadership team. We've hired I think, now 20 people in. Let's stop there for a second. Actually, that's more than I was expecting you to say. So 20 people is is is, this, is Renaissance more than just executive recruiting? You go. Well, no, you know, this is the whole C suite. Um, okay. I think there's about 10 people in the C suite now. And then a number of the direct reports into the C suite as well, where they've built out a team of 2,000 people now. So it's quite a big company um, yeah. in 18 months. And as I said, they're about to list on the New York Stock Exchange in the next couple of weeks. And it could be one of the largest IPOs of the European business um, of the last 10 years, maybe even two years. So yeah, that's quite an extreme example. But uh, it's a good you know, example of the kind of clients we work with on the consumer side um, uh, here in Europe. I mean, Seb and Matt, you're working more on the, the enterprise side. So perhaps you can give a bit more of a flavor there. And Seb, companies coming to Europe from the US is, is a good talking point, I think. Well, yeah, I've done loads of those. But, I mean, some of the big ones like Qualtrics, for example, which which came to Europe and we did their go-to-market team. And then they they actually got acquired by SAP for about $8 billion, And then they they spent out and refloated again. Or we did Carbon Black, which is a Sequoia-backed security business. That then floats on NASDAQ and got acquired by VMware. These are huge names. Kazoo, Qualtrics, Carbon Black. When a company is coming to you, what are the questions that, you know, if you were going to give advice, you know, to these companies when picking their next executive search firm, what are what are the questions that they should be asking um, when evaluating different different search firms to work with? Companies are guilty of describing what they want the, their executives to look like rather than what they want their executives to achieve. And so if you take away what people might have done historically, but look at what you want them to do over the next 12, 18, 24 months, that's the important point. Where are you trying to get to? Not who's going to take you there. Because once you know where your where your journey is, then you can reverse engineer who can take you on that journey. And yes, if you want a good search firm, you want someone who can actually turn around and tell you, you're wrong here. Your distributors are wrong. Your go-to-market strategy is wrong. You, you should do it this way. There's, there are other ways to do it. And, and, and when you've done it many, many times over 20 years, you've seen it in different scenarios, right? So you've seen that, that journey many, many times. And that's beyond finding an executive. That's helping a company come to another, to another region. And that's what we do for them. Search has become democratized. When I started in search, you had a little black book and you were paying for access to that black book. Forget that these days. With LinkedIn, anyone can identify anybody else. Um, that, that's not the secret source in search anymore. It's about mm-hmm. um, getting access to the right people, having good judgment as to, you know, out of those 20 people you, you talk to, who really are the best four or five suited to that role, and then being able to enroll them um, in that proposition when you find the people you want to hire. And I think that, that's what the best recruiters uh, are giving for their clients. Um access, judgment, and enrollment, um, not just identification and trawling the market, which is what it used to be. Matt, okay. I, I had a question for you because, you know, in Silicon Valley, one of the things that we constantly are talking about is, you know, how hot the market is, how hard it is to pull 
great people out of other jobs. People are getting paid a tremendous amount of money, whether they're at large companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera, or even hot startups with millions of dollars of, of equity that you know might be tied up, they haven't IPO'd yet, et cetera. How do you navigate that and you know recruit great people out of, you know, you know, given where salaries and equity are? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think this is, uh, I was fortunate that when I joined this organization five years ago, uh, just as a partner, and then, you know, nine months ago as the managing partner for North America, I mean, the institutional knowledge around the firm, uh, Seb and Tony uh, and our colleagues, I was fortunate enough uh, that there was strength in the brand uh, and in the track record of delivery, that when we call into the marketplace, people recognize that, uh, a, they recognize the track record, but B, they recognize uh, how thoughtful we try to be about the opportunities. And so that I'm not approaching Lewis uh, for some fly-by-night startup, um, but that I'm also not approaching Lewis about some fly-by-night executive role. Tony's comment on uh, the democratization of search is completely accurate. People may not be calling us for our little black book in the traditional sense. I think we know the five to 10 to 15 to 20 calls to make on any given search uh, that people will trust us and refer us to the right people or individuals in the marketplace where we can go have a thoughtful conversation. And then I think it's just about believing in the companies that you work for, right? I mean, and even sometimes in the case of a Carbon Black or a Qualtrics or a Kazoo, you know, it's not challenging to help people see that these are compelling opportunities. Maybe one differentiation point I'd say in North America, just because we are a much bigger marketplace, you know, I, this is something learned over years. You know, I'll look at, you know, if you look at what's happened in marketing technology over the last five or 10 years, there are thousands of companies where it's now about almost feature function differentiation in marketing tech. I'm really challenging and fortunately uh, we've got the brand to do it. But, you know, looking for opportunities where entrepreneurs are pushing the edge of technology or really trying to change the future of how uh, a customer or how a marketplace or how society at large might be interacting with technology. Um, and one client I would call out is a New Zealand-based company called Soul Machines that's pushing the next iteration of customer experience through artificial intelligence, literally designing digital brains uh, digital brain stems, neural pathways, and promoting technology in the in terms of the future of how we will engage and interact and drive the next wave of of engagement. And so I think this is reflective of similar opportunities that Tony and Sebastian see as well. Um, and so when you're calling into the marketplace with companies as profound uh, in terms of disruption to industries or, or society at large, I think it's People want to listen, and then it's about tuning into just their curiosities uh, and making sure that the relationship is a strong fit. Listen, it's always been tough. Like I said to my guys, if, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. So that's what we're paid for. So it, it is tough. I think the key to it is to try and work with the best investors and the best companies you can. Try and work as far up the pyramid in terms of the uh, the winners. And that's both in terms of you know the the, the, the company ideas, but, but the entrepreneurs and the investors. And you can't go too far wrong because people – are still attracted to the top investors and the top entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. You know? and that makes sense. You know, I'd, I'd love to transition to, to trends. You know, what, you know, 2021 is, we, we've seen tremendous change. 2020, the pandemic, move to remote work, 
that's probably had an enormous impact on on your business and how recruiting is in in general. But then I'd love to actually to dive into what are you seeing right now, right? In May of 2021, that's surprising and different than even, you know, what we were seeing a year ago. If you think internally, what's happening in our firm and how's the pandemic and what's happening in the last year affected us? I think that, uh, well, certainly people are, I wouldn't say reluctant to come back to the office, but they're not as enthused about coming back to the office as I thought they might be. And I think that virtually everyone now will have some kind of split between working from home and working in the office. I think coming back into the office five days a week, I just don't see that anymore. I think that's being mirrored um, amongst our clients um, as well. And I think also the other thing that I would say internally is that the impact of the pandemic on different people, employers need to look out for that as well because I think employees have been affected uh, in, in different ways. And it's not always obvious from uh, weekly Zoom calls with your employees um, which person has been affected in, in which way. And we've had a number of situations with people kind of coming back in with different you know, mental states and, and needing different things from the company, different things from the job um, that have been brought on by the pandemic. And I think that that's must be playing out at, at every workplace across the uh, across our sector. Yeah, look, I think that's fair. I think the other thing that's been interesting for me is that historically, early stage technology companies have been just been focused on top line customer acquisition, building revenues, getting product market fit, getting a thing moving, and that's what it was. And now, all of a sudden, so many of them are focused on chief people officers, BP people, people and talent, just because all of a sudden, their companies, they're working remotely, the whole thing's changed, they've had to actually address the, the, the whole people and environment scenario rather than just the growth scenario. And that's changed massively. So, so are you seeing a lot more searches for kind of heads of people? Without, without question. I mean, we have, we have uh, so, so we've got a guy called Malcolm Kemp, he's the chief people officer, ex-chief people officer at Klarna, he's been a chief people officer in a couple of other companies. And yeah, he, he, he doesn't have enough time in the day at the moment because every single company's looking at their people and talent scenario and trying to work out how they deal with it. Because historically, it was pushed to one side and now it's front and center. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, really interesting that you mentioned that. You know, certainly what I'm seeing as I'm advising companies uh, right now is on, you know, on these people things as they're growing, it's more challenging with kind of the remote and hybrid work environment. Um, and I've certainly been advising people like now more than ever, you should bring on a, a head of people. And so I'm, I'm, I, fi I find it interesting, but also not surprising that that's one of the more popular uh, searches right now. Um, well, if you th if you think what 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 a company's about, right? They're about the people. The sum has to be greater than individual parts. And all of a sudden, when you take those and you spread them, and they're all working remotely, you have to some find some way to knit the whole thing together. And this is where companies. It's a big challenge for all companies, whether they're large or small. How you deal with that in a pandemic? Yeah, I think also people, people and culture. I mean, and lots of these uh, companies now are calling it a kind of a people and culture officer because I mean, culture doesn't just happen spontaneously now like it used to in workplaces where everyone's in the office five days a week. It's a, it's a different thing. I think sometimes it now has to be, I won't say manufactured, but thought about more carefully about how that culture uh, now evolves and what it is yeah. in, in companies. And so that's the kind of interesting stuff that's coming out from the, yeah. of the, of the kind of pandemic. 
Is something I've seen that's probably a little more nuanced uh, in this balance between uh, work life and home life. People are, uh, the talent rather, uh, the executives that we are soliciting, I think are uh, more self-aware of the realities uh, and challenges um, and have had enough experience inside of mid, late or early, mid and late stage companies. And so I think there's a much more educated talent market, uh, executive market. And so as they are listening to these opportunities, they're less inclined just to chase after the, the uh, you know, next great business for promises of fortune and glory. Um, and make no mistake, I mean, I think there are still people that, you know, value those aspects. Uh, we all want to do, you know, well financially for ourselves or for our families. But I, I think that there's a, a greater... Um, uh, awareness or appreciation for, um, you know, what is the quality of life going to look like along with the, the contribution that I'm going to deliver to the company. Um, and so call that a more educated talent place. One of the things that certainly I'm seeing, and I'm sure you, you are as well, is, you know, the speed and size of fundraising rounds that are happening right now across Ooh. the technology sector. Seb and Tony, you've been in this business for decades you know, you've seen 2001, you've seen 2008, you know, and, and, and now here we are today. You know, what, what's your perspective on the, the speed and size of these fundraising rounds and what's happening right now in technology? It's just gone crazy. I mean, I remember back in, well, in, in London, back in the day, if you raised three million pounds in a Series A, you'd be running up and down Regent Street with a bottle of champagne naked. I mean, it's these days three million well, <laughs> very few Series A fundraising rounds are three million. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a seed round. Exactly, yeah. yeah it, it, it's and so that kind of yeah, just wall of money that's out there as a result of you know macroeconomic uh, situation around the world, low interest rates and um, high asset values, um, quantitative easing. All that money's got to go wow. somewhere, and all of it's been going into into tech in, uh, investment, and so it's. Um, it makes it a great market to be in, um, and obviously a lot of that that money raised uh, in, in Series A and B rounds uh, goes towards building out teams and hiring talent. So that's great for our industry, and uh, it's one of the reasons why we're also busy right now. So that, that's that's fantastic. But yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, whether it's sustainable. It's um, but if people were saying that back in two thousand eight, that can't be sustainable. It won't come back again. But here we are, and it's just got bigger and bigger. Incredible. Where we where we started, when Tony and I started, every single entrepreneur was desperate for venture capitalists to put money into their companies. And now, fast forward 20 years, every venture capitalist is desperate to money into the entrepreneurs' companies. It's got 180 degrees. And at some point, at some point, it has to slow down. But when you look at when you look at the metrics, there is no financial modeling you can put on these publicly traded companies as to the total uh, the perfect market capitalization of them versus the revenue. At the moment, there is a bubble. Mind you, saying that, we thought there was a bubble in 2008. We thought there was a bubble in 2001. And people seem to forget what happens, and they continue on with it. And, and by the way, the markets continue to support it. You know, I, I look at companies. I've got a client, particularly right now, I won't name them. They've got $600 million in revenue, and they're valued at $30 billion. Where does the metric work on that? How, how do you how do you work that through? You, you guys have been around for other you know quote unquote bubbles or market tops. You know do do you th you know do you think we're in a bubble right now? Or what's different about right now 
thinking about all the sectors in the economy, where, where would you rather be right now? Would you want to be retail? Not, not physical retail, I don't think. Um, no, certainly finance, not. Finance is coming back, but it's had a rough couple of years. Uh, property has been up and down. I mean, you look at the, the various sectors, but, but tech and digital, um, particularly with what's happened with the pandemic and, and the shift online, um, is without question the right sector to be in. And when you then layer on all the macroeconomic situation around you know, quantitative easing um, and governments buying back, uh, buying you know, bonds and assets, um, low interest rates and the ultra low interest rate environment we've had now for virtually 10 years since the 2008 crash, um, all of those things point in one direction, asset prices going up. But I think the reason why there's a bubble, um, and what is it a bubble or is it just going to carry on? Who knows when it'll stop? It is because there's just so much money in, uh, around the world. And you've got the, uh, you know, China and India um, in, in, in the Far East, more and more wealth being created, particularly in Asia. And yeah. that money's got to go somewhere. And you can't stick it in the bank. You know, investing in great companies who get great returns uh, in, in tech, the, probably the hottest sector in the world right now. Yeah, that, that's clearly what people are putting their money in. So it, it's just that that wall of money that's out there to, to go into something, and we're in the right place at the right time for that. Yeah, look, I, my last point uh, about uh, the talent or, or executives never being you know more thoughtful or, or intelligent about uh, the evaluation process of these companies. I mean, I think the reality is is that pre COVID. Um, and given some of the lackluster IPOs, uh, you know, I'm thinking of WeWork here as you started to dissect, like, what is this really? Um, and investors and shareholders begin to say, well, wait a minute, um, do we need more accountability in these investments and, and where are these funding rounds going? I think we've now swung around the other way, which is to say within our you know core offering in North America, B2B enterprise software companies, I think you can't follow funding rounds as a mechanism for success, meaning just because somebody took a large series B, C, you know, D round, it, the money doesn't necessarily matter. You really got to dig in and understand, well, uh, what is the value proposition of the product? Who are the leaders? And that's where I think, again, we really shine is being able to help executives perform a more thoughtful due diligence of hey, with this money comes great value. Um, and here's why this organization is going to go on to IPO or be acquired or be a profitable business. I wouldn't call this the top of the market yet. I think when interest rates start going back above 2% amongst all of the G7 countries, and when you know the Fed and the Bank of England and the EU stop quantitative easing, that's when you're going to call the top of the market. You know, th this is great. I have one final question for Tony and Seb, which is if, if you could go back to when you first started Renaissance and get, you know, give yourself some advice from what you know today, what would, what would be the advice you'd give to yourself? I think two things. Well, from my perspective, I would um, think bigger and take more warrants rather than fees. I, I think Bill might've said the same thing, right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Take equity in the companies. Yeah. Correct. So Correct. what about you, Seb? Well, okay, I, I, I mirror that. But I also think that the more conversations you have, the more you learn. And so I would push further and further into the people they used to interview and take more from it. Because, you know, I'm sure you've heard this from every recruiter you ever speak to, but if I knew then what I knew now, it'd be great. So, you know, the more information you can assimilate, the more scenarios you can, you can receive and look at, the better it is. And, and Matt, for you... You know, I, I know you're not one of the founders, but, you know, as you look back at your recruiting career, what, what's, the, what's the thing that you've learned over the last 12, 13 years 
you know, that, you know, really makes you a, a better advisor to companies now than you were a decade ago? Uh, sure. Two things. Uh, you know, one, not all dollars are earned the same. Uh, I think earlier in my career, uh, and particularly as you're uh, moving up the ranks of client services, um, you're eager to make a name for yourself. And so anybody who will listen uh, seems like a valuable prospect. And then uh, when you get that um, client that isn't well aligned for your value proposition or uh, you didn't conduct a proper diligence uh, in terms of your ability to deliver value. Um, how many client services professionals or recruitment professionals have had to bang their head against the wall uh, with a difficult client relationship uh, that they could have seen coming if they were more thoughtful up front? So I think, you know, over the last five years uh, where I've excelled and, and really kind of come into my own um, is just really being thoughtful about, can I create value here and having the discipline to walk away from things and say, no, this isn't a great opportunity or, or yes, this is. Um, and then the second one would just be as an extension of that careers, uh, vocations. I mean, they're built over time. Um, and you can't go from, you know, day one, month, one year one and expect yeah. to be, you know, yeah. associate to chief executive officer. Um, and so, you know, again, I've probably banged my head against the wall a time or two or, or uh, uh, pissed a client and or a, a colleague off a time or two, uh, wanting it to happen all at once or happen overnight. Um, and you really got to be patient. Um, and that isn't to say you do have to take risks and you do have to force opportunities sometimes. But by force of will uh, and wanting it to happen sooner than it's going to, um, that's not a recipe for success. And so you have to you have to go through the uh, experience, um, and with that experience comes wisdom and expertise, um, and then you know a little bit of good luck to sprinkle over the top of that. Uh, you know you can rise the ranks and become a managing partner of a global uh, you know executive search firm. Well. Um, this has been great. Thank you, Seb, Tony, and Matt. Uh, it was great thank learning more about Renaissance leadership. Uh, thank you so much for, for the time and for joining me on the startup stack. Thank you. Really great nice. to connect. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lewis. Cheers, yeah, guys. Thanks, Lewis. Cheers. It was a pleasure. Goodbye from London. Thanks again for Matt, Seb, and Tony for joining me on today's startup stack. To learn about Renaissance leadership and the work they do, check out the link to their Rocketplace profile in the show notes. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.